When our daughter Rebecca was uh, born, we started praying that God would send the right man into her life, and he did. Pure answer to prayer. Um, It's hard to love your son-in-law sometimes, though, you know? I don't understand this thing where you raise the daughter, you pay all that money to raise them, then they get married, and on the day of the wedding, they change their last name. You know, it's almost like you did your part, you can leave now. But when it works right, you're always included, and now we get to enjoy the the three boys, the grandkids, and it is a pleasure. This is my wife, Pam. Pam, stand if you would. She's been... uh, Pam grew up in Brazil as a missionary's daughter, and we've now been married for 44 years. We think our marriage is going to work. You never know, but we're working on it still. And we have uh, been blessed, and as John said, we were privileged to um, minister at First Baptist West Hollywood for 18 years. But I grew up here in uh, Miramar, and um, I went to Miramar Elementary, I went to MacArthur High School, and this is where I grew up. I was one of those kids that came in on the Sunday school bus to church years and years ago when bus ministries were a big deal and accepted Christ, and it's been a wonderful journey. Now we're back in Brazil. We've been back there for over 10 years. And um, when I first went to Brazil back in 1979, the first time we were in Brazil, I didn't like for people to hug me. I was typical American, you know, that old-style American. I want my space. And um, I wasn't yet influenced by the, the people who like to hug. And then I went to Brazil, and everybody hugs everybody all the time, whether they know them or not. And uh, so now I'm huggable, which is a good thing. <clears throat> so if any of you are huggers, I'll, I know how to react now. I won't offend myself or you if you decide to hug me at the end of the service. Brazil's in a very good place right now spiritually, but it's in a very, very bad place politically and economically, and now with the health ep- epidemic. Please pray for Brazil. The Olympics are coming up in six months, and it's not a good time. And it's really, really tense, a lot of stress in the country, a lot of pregnant women, because if the mosquito uh, bites the woman during the initial part of the pregnancy, it can cause, cause severe birth defects. You can imagine the stress that people are under. So pray for them, and unfortunately, it looks like some of this is coming this way too. And we'll all be needing each other to support, uh, support each other during this time. I want to talk to you this morning about the most important thing I think that I could talk to any Christian about. Uh, you're in the middle of a service a series called Jumpstart. Jumpstart your life, jettison your junk. Um, it's a nice title for these days. In the old days, probably they wouldn't have used that kind of an expression, but it basically means this. There comes a point in your spiritual journey where religion is just not going to cut it. Uh, it doesn't matter what your religion is. There's, there's going to come a moment when your faith, whatever your religion might be, it really gets put to the test. And that is when we find out whether or not what we've chosen to believe is up to the challenge. And I believe that the United States right now is in a moment where this is occurring I think that for Christians especially, we've been living in a very privileged environment in the United States where up to a certain point, our culture that surrounds us has given us a lot of support and we've not been very deeply persecuted 
And so we've kind of had a, a faith that has been, I would say at times, in a very positive environment. A lot of people really, really long to come to this country because of the kind of freedom and support that we as Christians enjoy in this country. But it's not that way around the world. And a lot of times we'll hit a place in our life when we, uh, we go through what the old thinkers in the Christian faith used to call the dark night of the soul. And the dark night of the soul is a time in your life when you feel so alone, so in the dark, that you, you don't question your faith, but you're just unable to see. Uh, I went through a time like that about 20 years ago, right here in the United States, right here when I was pastoring First Baptist of West Hollywood. And it just seemed like that I reached the end of my own ability. It was almost like I was trying to live a kind of Christianity that depended a lot on my own understanding of the Bible. It depended a lot on my own determination. It depended a lot on my own skill. And I guess God in His mercy and the way that He works with all of us, He has to bring us to the end of those things. He has to get us in a place where He says, look, I'm not trying to hurt you, but you've got to understand who I am and who you are. And so I'm going to take you to this place where you're going to come to the end of you and you're going to have to reassess who I am and I'm going to have to work in your life in a very deep way. And He took me to that place. And in that place, he changed my estimation of Jesus. Now, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Amen. But we don't always see him for what he really is. And uh, we underestimate him. For instance, you folks who live here in South Florida, have you ever underestimated the cost of a house repair? Have you ever underestimated the volatility of home values? Anybody here remember that? Um, any of you ever have to deal with the strength of the ocean? When you're swimming and all of a sudden you're not swimming anymore, you're going. You're being taken out. How about the wind? Anybody here aware that the wind can do damage? But you underestimated what it could do? Hurricane Andrew come to mind for some of us? Have you ever had a physical symptom in your body that you chose to ignore and underestimate and then you paid a price? Have you ever underestimated the negative influence of a person in your life? Has someone ever come into your life and begun to influence you and only later you realize just how far they took you away from who you really are? Have you ever seen that done when some other teenager comes into the life of your teenager? We are constantly in this state as human beings of estimating things and people. In fact, every single day, you wake up in the morning and this estimator that lives in your brain clicks on. You get out into traffic, you're estimating how long it's going to take, and it always takes longer. You wake up in the morning and you see a person coming toward you and you, you start sizing them up. Are they, are they dangerous? Are they nice? Can I relax around this person? There's something inside of you every day that God created which causes you to, to be constantly measuring, constantly estimating. And without this ability to estimate, you really 
uh, can be totally lost in this world. You're very, very vulnerable if you don't know how to read things. You don't know how to read people. We all need to know how to estimate. Now, sometimes people really mess up. And um, we need to jettison religion because religion is a, in a book. It's a bunch of ideas, but we need to go to a little bit deeper thing. We need to get to where we never underestimate Jesus. And where I'd like to take us this morning in this sermon, I want to take you on a journey of how Jesus disciples people and how, he, how he's discipling you and how he's discipling me. This happened to me when I went through my dark night of the soul about 20 years ago where he taught me that the, the number one person in my life that I need to estimate correctly is Jesus who lives in me. And that's where we want to go this morning. Um, Look at this picture. This picture appeared on a National Geographic uh, program recently, and it's about this group of people where this photo was taken well over 100 years ago. Just an ordinary kind of country scene, but someone bought this picture in a junk shop And they were people who went around looking for treasures that people didn't value. You know, that kind of thing you buy that they think is only worth a dollar, and it's worth a lot more than that. And it turns out, as they studied this picture, they found a group in this picture with a very famous person. His name was Billy the Kid. How many have ever heard of Billy the Kid? How many have heard of El Chapo? You ever heard of him? He was kind of the El Chapo of those days. He was a gang guy, a gang leader, but he was a little guy, but he was a mess. And uh, you get a little picture here. He's the guy on the left. He doesn't look very scary, does he? Looks like he could use a little help dressing to me, but he's, uh, this is his gang, and they're playing, of all things, croquet, you know, which is weird, but it was because the guy's house who was there was from Great Britain, and he taught them the game. And uh, this is Billy the Kid. Not very special, right? So imagine if you had this picture in, a, in your house, what do you think it would be worth? Well, this couple found this picture in the junk shop and paid less than $2. And then they spent a lot of time tracing what's called provenance, which will tell you if it's authentic, where did it come from. When they were finally done in the National Geographic program, which you can find probably on YouTube or somewhere, tells the story When they were all done, that picture was worth $5 million. Now, I want you to think about all the families that had that picture during the last 130 years. All right? It was in their house. It was in their hands. And yet, many of the families that held that picture in their hands and in their house may have gone hungry at night because they didn't have money to buy food. Uh, There might have been someone who had that picture and they were waiting on an operation and didn't have any insurance. Uh, They had this treasure in their hands, in their house, in their home, and they did not know. Now, all of you are going to go home today before the Super Bowl (laughs) and take a good look because there may be something in your home. Who knows? What I want to talk to you about is the fact that um, whether you understand it, whether I understand it, whether we understand it or not, the creator of the universe, Jesus, lives in you. Let, Let that thought think in for a second. 
You know, sometimes Christianity is just reduced to I go to church, I sing the songs, I read the Bible. But Christianity is weird. If you really listen to it, it's very strange. We actually believe that by the Spirit of Christ, by the Holy Spirit, God came and made us His home. And that He lives in us. So the question that I want to talk about with you this morning is, what is the price we pay for underestimating Jesus? The families that had that Billy the Kid photo did not know it. Some of them may be alive right now to know it. But they, they lived without understanding the value of what was in their home. And they sold it to somebody in a shop so cheaply that they could sell it for a dollar or two dollars and make a profit. Now, when they saw that program on television, I bet they wept. And I bet they blamed each other, like families will do. But I want to suggest to you that when God took me into my dark night of the soul, what he did to get me out of it, he didn't change my circumstances. He raised my estimation of Jesus. He didn't change what was surrounding me. He didn't change my problems. He didn't even change me. He he basically, very patiently said, I am in you, and this is what I'm worth to you. This is what I'm worth to you. Every time we underestimate Jesus, we lose something. We lose something. We pay a price. For instance, I, all of my life, have dealt with problems with anger. I don't know whether it comes from the Scotch-Irish blood, the McCords. You know, my wife is a McCartney, and her mother was a McCoy. So we have a fight just waking up in the morning. You know, we're, we're like, I'm on duty to fight. And we're the people of the Mel Gibson film, you know, Braveheart. We're those folks. We are always ready to fight. And so I've lived my entire life uh, wanting to be a more peaceful person, but there's something in me that's always kind of on guard. And um, it has been a lifelong thing. But you know what? The higher I value Jesus, the calmer I get. I've been married to Pam for 44 years, and I finally learned in the dark night of my soul that when I begin to argue with Pam, and I like to win, any other husbands like that? I like the final word. And um, I began to learn to ask Jesus, since he lives in me, Jesus, do you want me to continue this argument? You know, in 44 years, not one time he said yes. He said yes. Go ahead, boy. Go for the juggler. Not one time. I wonder why he never says yes to that. It's because it doesn't match with the calm that he is. Every time I am angry, I am underestimating Jesus. Every time I am fearful, as a Christian, I am underestimating Jesus. 
I'm not being critical. I'm just telling you about me. I'm saying when Bud is angry, fearful, persistent, critical, envious, judgmental, and those are just a few of my sins. Every time there was a way for me to live from a wealth in me that should have stopped that. I live in a city that's crazy, Sao Paulo. Now we've got mosquitoes biting everybody that are sick. So we add to the violence. Our, we have no death penalty in Brazil. But our police last year in our state killed 500 people in the act of arresting them. But the criminals killed several hundred police officers. It's nuts. And there are times when I'm in the middle of that chaos and I go, I get so frustrated and I get so irritated. And every time I ask Jesus if he's frustrated, he says what? No. Every time I ask him if he's afraid to live in Brazil... He says what? I I don't know where you should live, but I do know this about you. You shouldn't be afraid where you live. That's two torments. One is living where you live, right? Sometimes just living where you live is a torment. But to be afraid where you live is a double torment. Part of that is optional. That's what I want to kind of get across. I want to show you how important this is. Let me read this passage in John chapter 1. And you will see as I come down this passage... That eternity, every single human being's eternity, depends on how they see Jesus. How they estimate His value. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him, in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light, Jesus, that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and through the world was ma- and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. The world did not have a right estimation. They didn't recognize the photo. It's only a dollar's value. They didn't see him. He came to that which was his own. I mean, he came to the people who should have recognized him, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to all who did make a good estimation of him, a correct one, those who believed in his name, he gave, became, gave them the right to become the sons of God. The fact that you can call yourself a Christian is based on this. You have seen him, and you have said, he is the son of God. Amen? Amen. He is the son of God. I believe that. I don't understand it all, but that's what I really believe. So when Jesus came into the world, he encountered a world which did not estimate him as being important. He was born in the wrong place. He was raised in the wrong city. He had the wrong parents. He just was not what they were expecting. So they they couldn't understand what they had in front of them. And so when Jesus started his ministry, when the dove of the Holy Spirit came on him, 
What did he do? Did he give people a course in religion? No. He gave them a course in himself. In other words, he was the subject. What he did, every miracle, every word, was designed to move people from a low estimation to a proper estimation of him. Discipleship, properly understood, is the process by which Jesus takes you from a low estimation of who he is, what he can do, to a high estimation of who he is and what he can do. Now, John, in his gospel, the gospel of John, reveals to us that Jesus discipled his first disciples by raising their estimation of him to the right level. Now, here's what I learned, and here I I pray that I can communicate it with you today, maybe in a way that would inspire you. I spent a lot of years studying the Bible, and every moment I spent was unbelievably important. But I did not understand that the goal of the Bible is to get me face-to-face with Jesus and help me to see him for who he really is and help me to live from his life. So the Bible's not a destination. The Bible's more like a GPS. The the address that the Bible is taking you to is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life, right? No man comes a father but by... Okay, so the Bible is trying to get you face-to-face with him, and then the Bible is working on you to raise your estimation of him. But not only that, the Holy Spirit is in you trying to get you to see Jesus correctly. Now, I'm going to walk you through seven miracles in the book of John. The book of John is incredible. There's seven miracles and seven statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And the book is broken up into seven key miracles, seven statements. I just want to walk you through the miracles. And then very quickly, I want you to see how that every miracle that Jesus performed in the presence of his mother, in the presence of his brothers, in the presence of his disciples, all of them were designed to do one thing. Take people who didn't know who he was, didn't recognize his value, and move it so that they would understand it. Number one, you remember the story of the turning of water into wine? In John chapter 2, Mary, the mother who had seen Jesus solve so many problems, and he was the greatest son who ever lived. And she's at the wedding with the relatives, and Jesus and his disciples are there. And she comes to Jesus and says, they have run out of wine. Now, I'm not going to debate with you what kind of wine that was, but they ran out. And... Um, that was, a, that was a big deal because the wedding then lasted for maybe a week. And wine was a very big part of the celebration. And to run out of wine was a human error of epic proportions. It would always be remembered. And Mary, being a caring mother, goes to Jesus, who is a great son, and says in panic, help them. And Jesus is hard on her. And he says, woman, what do I have to do with that? It is not my problem. Now, it seems like, wow, that's pretty harsh. Why would he do that? It's because he needed to change Mary's estimation of him because later things were going to get really ugly. Within three years, he's going to be crucified. And he cannot let Mary keep thinking that he is still the Jesus from his home. 
Things have now changed. He is out in the open and things are going to get rough. And so he puts Mary in a class. And the class is, don't try to control me anymore. And don't tell me what to do. Because you don't understand what my real essence is and what I'm here to do. And so after she leaves, she makes a little statement. Do whatever he says. Wow, what a woman. She got it. I don't know how she got it that quick, but she got it. She said, do whatever he says. She, she, had, she understood. I think she corrected herself really quickly. Do whatever he says. You know the story. He turns the water into wine. That's the first miracle. And what is he saying? He's saying this. Humans make mistakes. Anybody here agree with that? We mess up things really badly, don't we? Okay. But don't make Jesus stop everything he's doing just because you made a mistake. Don't think that it all revolves only around you. He is doing a lot of things that are bigger than all of us. But understand this. He will come into your mistakes and turn water into wine. He will teach you things that are valuable like wine, even from your mistakes. Trust him. He knows how to make humans better, especially me and you. Second miracle. There's a nobleman's son who is sick, and he is dying. And the nobleman has heard about Jesus' healings, probably had seen some of his healings. And so when Jesus gets close to where the nobleman lives, he rushes to Jesus, and he thinks that the power is in the biological body of Jesus, the presence of Jesus. And so his estimation of Jesus is, anything that's near enough to touch him, he can, he can do something about And Jesus says, I'm not going to your house. Again, that's not what the man wanted to hear. But the man is humble enough, and Jesus says, go on home. Your son is healed. And the guy had enough faith, kind of like Mary. It's kind of like Mary. You see, he he makes a mistake. He doesn't get Jesus right. But then he says, because you tell me to go home, I'm going to go. Now imagine this guy. He's walking home scared to death. All he's got to go on is Jesus' promise. And he's heading for home. All of a sudden, some servants come running saying, your son is healed. First question he has, when, what time did he get better? And they told him the time, and he said, that was when Jesus spoke. You know what? That guy would never forget that moment in his life, that Jesus, from long distance, can do stuff. Listen, we live way, way away, 5,000 miles from our children and grandchildren, But that's not far for Jesus. We can touch our children, our grandchildren every day by intercession, by prayer, by talking to Jesus. Amen? You need to understand that you have a connection to everywhere. And when you pray, if you can get a word from Jesus, it'll calm you down and send you on your way. I don't know how this is going to work out, but I know that Jesus heard it, and I know that something's going to happen at the right moment. And you may have to go on for a period of time without knowing what's going to happen. And then one day you'll understand why that happened and how it happened and what God was behind. He's discipling them. Another miracle, the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. This guy had been laying paralyzed for 38 years. 
And there was a pool in the city of Jerusalem. They called it Bethesda. And there was an event that took place probably annually where an angel would come and and the water would be moved, and then it was a race to see who would be the first person in. Well, when you're paralyzed for 38 years, you don't race well. And so for, he's been frustrated his whole life. I can't change this. I can't change this. Jesus comes to him and asks him a question, which the question is almost offensive. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Well, obviously. That's why I'm lying here. But then he says this. I have no one. You can read the passage. I have no one. Now hang on a second. Who is standing in front of him? Someone. But haven't you been in a place where you couldn't change something in your life? Your anger, your fear, your bitterness, your lack of... Haven't you ever been paralyzed? Haven't you ever felt... I did when I went through my dark night of the soul, I really thought I was in that bed forever. I didn't have anywhere to go. I couldn't get up. I looked like a pastor. I talked like a pastor. But on the inside, I was a paralytic. I was stopped. And you know what I said to Jesus when he came to me in my prayer? I don't have anybody. I did that. And he said... Take up your bed and walk, bud. Get up. It isn't your strength. It's mine. Get up. And I got up. To this day, I don't understand it. All I know is that when he says get up, you can get up. When Jesus comes to fix what's permanently broken you, he'll do a great job with it, and forever you'll glorify him because you changed at that moment. That happens in our lives as disciples. One that is greater than hunger is here. You all know this story. Five loaves, two fishes. The disciples are panicked. Send them away. How do you send away? Probably seven, eight, nine, ten thousand people. All right, everybody, back to your homes. We're done. Show's over. What does Jesus say? Very interesting. He says, tell them to sit down. You know what that is? In that culture, when you tell somebody to sit down, that means you're going to serve them. It's like saying to somebody, come on in, sit on my sofa. Well, if they come in the front door and sit on your sofa, you've got to give them something to drink, right? Or you should. I hope you would give me that if I came to your house. If you say, come on in, you're assuming some responsibility. So he asks them, sit down, and they feed them all. Have you ever been in a place in your life where you had so many responsibilities, so many people that depended on you, so many things to do that you just wanted God to send it all away? Maybe you run a company. You wanted to fire everybody. But you know what? That's when Jesus comes to you and says, like we sang first, that song was beautiful. Seek first the kingdom of God, and he'll pay the bills. He'll feed people. Another one, Jesus walks on the water. They're in the boat because Jesus told them to get in the boat and row, and they did, and they got in a storm, and they were making no progress. Have you ever gotten to a place in your life where you were doing what Jesus told you to do in your marriage, in your family, in your business, and you are rowing your brains out, and you are getting nowhere? And you look up at him, and you go, you called me to this. You told me to marry her. You told me to marry him. You told me to start this business. I know you did. 
And I'm rowing my brains out, and I don't know where we're going to get. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, he comes to you and scares you half to death. And says, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. And he comes into the boat, calms you down, and you get up the next morning, and you start making progress going where you're supposed to go. He's discipling you. One of the greater than human blindness is here, the healing of the blind, man born blind. The guy has been blind his whole life, and man, i got to tell you, folks, I found out in my dark night of the soul that I was a blind man. I had some blind spots in my marriage. I had some blind spots in my leadership. I had some blind spots in my life, and I had become so accustomed to living in the dark in those areas that I just could not believe that I had blind spots but because it was normal to me to be blind in those spots. And Jesus came into that light and, and that time, and he touched me, and it was almost like I woke up in a different world, and it, because he touched me, I could see. And finally, the last one. You remember this story when, when Lazarus, Jesus' good friend, is, is sick, and Jesus doesn't go running off to help him. He stays. The disciples don't understand it. Finally, Lazarus dies. Jesus goes, the sisters are in mourning. He goes before the tomb and he, and he says, take the stone away and he calls him out and now he's going to stink by now. Don't, don't involve yourself. He says, no, you don't understand. I am greater than death. You know, every one of us is headed toward death. And the estimation you have of Jesus is going to be what holds you together through that you and I, we're going to reach the place where our body is not going to cooperate anymore and we're going to come down to the very end of this. But at that moment, Jesus said this, he who believes in me will never die. So if you raise your estimation of Jesus, your fear of death will diminish. And you will understand, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see what he did in, John chapter, in the book of John? He took a group of people who didn't really know him And he very patiently walked them through miracles and deliverances. And then if you read the whole book of John, you'll see that he did that and he did that and he did that and he did that. And then at the very end, he goes to the cross and lets himself be brutally murdered. And and they're thinking, wait a minute, I thought you were going to bring a kingdom in. And they still didn't get it. And then he rose from the dead and they still didn't get it. But finally, after three and a half years, it was like at the day of Pentecost, the light just kind of went on in that first group of disciples. It was like they had found the photo, checked the provenance, and said, this is the treasure that was hidden in the field. This is the pearl of great price. And they sold everything and said, give me Jesus. What I want to say to you is my brothers and sisters in Christ, if we want to disciple a person or become a better disciple, we must help them have a continuously growing estimation of Jesus. Do not lead them to your religion. Lead them to Jesus. Do not lead them to a building. Lead them to Jesus. This is a wonderful church. 
And this church is a wonderful church because it leads people to Jesus. Keep doing that. It's what it should be doing. Christ in you, the hope of glory, that's you. That photo of Jesus is revealed in you. It's not Billy the Kid. It's not El Chapo that lives in you. Thank God. It's Jesus who lives in you. And he needs to be revealed in you. It's Christ is all and isn't all. I want to say this to you with all my heart. I do not have any more Christianity than you do. You have the same Christianity that I have. We are equal in Jesus Christ. Amen? We all have the same riches. It's Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, and they are in heaven, and that are on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. And I end with these words, and I want to give it to you just to say as, as lovingly as I can. You want to make your life five million times better. Raise your estimation of Jesus. He will drive out of you fear. He will drive out of you pain. He will set you free. One day at a time, you will begin to know who it is that really, really, really lives in you. I'm beginning to believe this. The greatest sin that I can commit on a daily basis is to underestimate Jesus. And I'm asking God to cure me of this sickness that we humans have of not giving him credit for everything that he really is. And I know we'll spend all eternity learning more and more about who Jesus is. May God bless you. And may Jesus rule in your life every single moment, every day. May God bless you.